Yes, that was beautiful. Thank you. We're going to look at 1 Timothy, so get your Bibles out. And uh, Dan, if I could get you to you and uh, Robert to hand out the Bibles. We're going to really go deep into the Word today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. But we are fearless here at the well, and we go after these things, and we dive deep together into the Word. So I'm going to be, I have spent so much time on that, this chapter this week, trying to make sure that I'm saying what the Bible says and not reading into it what I wanted to say. Chuck Smith said once about this chapter, I wish this wasn't in the Bible, because it'd be a lot easier to deal with if it weren't there. So 1 Timothy 2, just a quick quiz for those of you who were here last week. Who is writing this letter? Paul. Who's he writing it to? Timothy. And Timothy is being sent into Ephesus. He is smoke jumping. He is going into a dysfunctional situation in an incredible city. The city of Ephesus, about the same size as Long Beach at the time, was one of the most important cities in the world. Occasionally, it was the biggest city in the world and certainly the wealthiest. There was a lot of good things happening in Ephesus. They had a life expectancy of 70, which was unknown in the world until this century here. They had uh, nursing homes, they had hot and cold running water, they had pension plants, they had the whole deal. This was a first world city. Fantastic place. And the church there was very important. Apollo started the church, Paul watered the church. He's sending in Timothy. The apostle John finally settled down there with Mary, whom he was taking care of. And he called his church the community of the beloved disciple, and Mary was very prominent in the church there in Ephesus. So this is a major church in a major, major city. So we're going to be looking today at some key things. Paul is talking to Timothy and sending Timothy in to fix some things that need fixing. Paul wasn't satisfied with leading one church. He would lead a dozen churches at once, and he would do that through the mail. And the Roman postal system was so efficient that you could get a letter into Paul's area of working pretty much anywhere in about four or five days. So the roads were incredible. They were paved. They, this was a fantastic uh, setup, civilization at the time, at the Eastern Mediterranean. So he was running about a dozen churches at once, and they were all smaller than the well. They were house churches that met in churches, and they were very, very influential. Paul got in big trouble in Ephesus. Who remembers the riot he caused? He caused a riot because he came down on the main institution in town, which was the Temple of Artemis, otherwise known as the Temple of Diana in Latin. And the Temple of Diana, Artemis, whatever you want to call it, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was this, the hub of the city. And all of the priests were female. People assumed in Ephesus that if you're going to be doing something spiritual, you were a woman. That's just how it worked. And so when the Christian when the Ephesian women joined the church, they just assumed, well, we're in charge, right? That's how that works here. And Paul is trying to get men involved in church also, which was a new thing for the Ephesians, because the men were going off by themselves because they had no power or authority in spiritual matters in Ephesus. They're going off by themselves and going into arcane things about the Bible, all kinds of little arguments and disputes. And 
forming conspiracy theories and doing what guys do when women don't let them in. They get weird. Men just get strange. They, they get odd. And they form little groups like the Moose Lodge and things, and they have special secret things and handshakes and hats. And they, that's what they were doing. And Paul's saying, guys, get back in the game here. Get back in the game here. Quit goofing around with all this stuff. Get back in the game. And women, make some room for them, why don't you? And so this is kind of what's going on here. He sends Timothy in to take care of things. So here's the problems. Men, they were getting into conspiracies and speculation. And this happens in every single men's group I've been a part of. People want to start talking about minor things and arguing about things that just don't matter. Men, what it is about us, but we, we can have a huge argument over the difference between a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom and it, for days and never lead anyone to the Lord and never feed a hungry person and never do anything Christian. We just, just we get that way. That's a male thing. I can't speak for women. That's how we are. Women. There was a power imbalance in spiritual things in Ephesus. It was assumed in Ephesus, if it's spiritual, it's female. So women are in charge. And there was the Artemis cult going on, which was a female cult, and it was huge. Picture St. Peter's in Rome, and this is a big deal. This is not a little sidelight. This is not a little fringe cult. This is the main spirituality of the town was revolving around Artemis. Widows, this was a real problem too, because Christians had a, had a uh, reputation for taking care of widows. And so they would do that in other towns where they needed it, but they didn't need it in Ephesus because they had, they had a social network. They had a so social safety net there, and they, had, they took care of widows, but the widows would show up anyways and ask for money and say, you know, can we get some, we hear you Christians, you're good at that. And these were rich women, some of them, rich widows showing up saying, well, hey, I hear Christians take care of widows, and they were kind of getting pushy. Conspicuous consumption. Uh, I, I hesitate to say this, but it's always fun to go down to Fashion Island and watch the ladies who lunch, uh, the, the sort of wealthy women uh, who are just kind of showy with their bling and all their stuff. You know, this is what we do, and this is, this is what we're about, and showing off. That was a big problem in Ephesus. Politics. People said, well, for Christians, should we be praying for the leaders in town? Should we be supportive or should we be subversive? Could we be a subversive group and try to topple the government? And Paul's saying, you guys are living in the best city in the world. Just leave it alone. You know, it could get a lot worse than this if you go out from here. Just don't do that. So those are the things that, that uh, Paul is dealing with. And he sends Timothy in to handle these things. And he uses very firm language. So for the first chapter and a half, he comes down on men. The problem with men is they get very opinionated about stuff they know kind of halfway about. And I... I do that too, because I'm a guy. Uh, we have opinions. American men have opinions about everything. Just to just poke us, an opinion will come out. We just that's just how we are. And we are quick to share them, and that's just the way we are. And we have all kinds of things that we want to go to the mat on that aren't really in the Bible. And that's kind of how you want to get a fight going in a men's group, bring up the end times. You know, uh, uh, is there a rapture? When will it happen? You know, off, off it'll go. I can't imagine women putting as much time into stuff like that because it's not, it's not central to the gospel. And Paul's trying to bring things into the center, bring things back into the middle. And I hope I'm not sounding too binary here, like men are like this, women are like this, but men and women are different. They have a lot more in common than they have differences, but there are differences, especially when they're together with each other. They tend to magnify. Don't believe this. Go to a boy's dorm and a girl's dorm. 
and you will see a major difference in how things are. The smell alone will be very different as you go through the medical. It's just, it's a different kind of, of thing. You put too many guys in one place, it starts to smell bad. That just will happen. So, problem with men. And he says to the men, pray for those in authority. Quit being in these subversive little underground groups. Quit trying to think that you're all that. And his prescription is that they would raise their hands in prayer. And this is in verse 2 of chapter 2. If you look at 1 Timothy 2, chapters verses 1 and 2, pray for the authorities. Quit trying to Monday morning quarterback everything that's happening in the government, which is another thing men do. Well, well what I would have done if Biden is stupid, you should have done this. And, and you know, Newsom should have done that. And it, it's, it's just on and on and on. And quit doing that and get on with your life. Ephesus is run better than any city in the world, so uh, appreciate that, be grateful for that, and get on with your Christian life. And he's got a prescription. Lift up your hands. Why lift up your hands? Men are hesitant to lift up their hands. Ask any worship leaders. Uh, women are more likely to raise their hands in worship than men. It's just the truth. Why? Because this is a receptive, I don't know everything kind of gesture. This is receiving. This is not telling. This is not being an opinionated. This is being, God, tell me, fill me. And men have a hard time with that. Okay, if you're a man in the room, raise your right hand. Raise your left hand. Good, I got, got that out of your system. We'll move on. So it's just, uh, we men need to do this occasionally in prayer to, to stop being so egotistical about our opinions and to start being more open to the Holy Spirit and the Lord's leading. And he doesn't say all people raise up hands. He says the women are already doing that in worship. Men, raise your hands, because that will put you in a posture of receptivity rather than a posture of hiding and sneaking around and having opinions. I think postures make a big difference. I used to travel a lot, and when I would come home, uh, if I would greet Wendy with, you know, I'm glad I'm home. Hi, hon. Uh, that wouldn't work very well. Wendy wanted to see an open posture. An open kind of posture. Watch me sometime because I'm not very musical and I'm kind of inhibited during music time. And I caught myself doing it again today. I start the worship set like this. And about the second song, I'm like this. And third song, I'm opening. Why do we have to sing three songs? Because it takes that long for guys. We, we, we need to kind of get into it. We're a little slow sometimes. We don't receive it quite as quickly as we can. And so, men, Paul's talking to you. And by the way, he spends more time on men than he does on women in this book. But we focus on the women stuff, which is really unfortunate. We focus on, we skateboard over the guy's stuff, and then we hit the men's stuff. Well, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. There are two ways of looking at 1 Timothy 2. And I'd like you to write these down if you've got some to write with. Egalitarian and complementarian. And you can look up both on Google. 1 Timothy 2. Type in egalitarian, 1 Timothy 2, type in complementarian. Do it on YouTube and you'll get videos of both. Complementarians believe that church leadership should be reserved for men. And this is a majority of Christians in the world. The Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, the Southern Baptist Convention all believe that and teach a complementarian view. I am not bashing the complementarian view. I think we have... I think this country would be a whole lot better off if we would be a lot more respectful of people's other opinions. And just say, hey, you're brothers and sisters in the Lord, you think differently. That's okay. I am an egalitarian. 
And most charismatic and Pentecostal Christians are egalitarians because they see roles in the church as giftings rather than offices, rather than a hierarchy. They tend to say, well, she's gifted as a teacher or a worship leader, or however that seems to work. And so there's complementarians and egalitarians. You can be either one you want. It's up to you and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I think I owe it to you to tell you what I think, because I'm a guy. So we have opinions. I, I, I was raised as an, as an egalitarian, and part of that's cultural. My background is Scandinavian, Norwegian, Swedish, those folks. And they live very spread out in little villages. And folks, you can't have narrow roles for people in little villages. If somebody's good at something, they gotta be, you got to use that person. It doesn't matter if they're male or female, old or young. If somebody's good at doctoring, that person does the doctoring. If someone's good at speaking in public, they're in charge of the meeting. So people coming from a more hierarchical background tend to move in the complementarian direction. I have a more egalitarian background. I tend to have a bias towards the egalitarian view, which I happen to think is true anyways, but I'll show you why. Anyways, I just want to lay my cards on the table and tell you this is what I think the Bible says. And it's completely up to you as to how you receive the Bible. Because this is something which, who thinks that male-female relationships haven't been totally figured out yet? It, God creates marriage just because he has a sense of humor. You know, it's a, it, it, you just look at men and women living together. What a crazy idea to have a man and a woman run a house. I just, it's just completely different sometimes. But we really do help each other out because of that difference is really kind of beautiful. There's a real fantastic kind of chemistry that comes out of that. And every marriage, every relationship is different. But I encourage all of you to lean into those relationships, those male-female relationships, because you will learn more from a male-female relationship than you will from one of your own gender. Because it's just a different way of seeing the world. And to have a primary relationship with someone of the opposite sex is the biggest growth tool there is. It's a power tool for growing. And if you stick it out, you're going to learn a lot if you have your hands up and you're teachable, teachable to what other people tend to see. So let's look at this passage. So he talked about the men, and he says, men, don't try to topple the government here. Ephesus is pretty dang good compared to the whole rest of the world. Second of all, raise your hands in prayer. Be more receptive. And then he goes in verse 9 to the women. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Why is he saying this? You can tell what's going wrong in any community by what they're mentioning. People are showing up dressed like the real housewives of Orange County, basically. <laughs> they're just real dazzly, showy, you know, uh, $500 haircuts and the whole manicure, pedicure thing. You know, just, just, woo, you know, just trying to. And they can do that in Ephesus because it's a stinking rich city. And the people who show up like that are showing off. And guess what? In every rich city, there's people who aren't rich. And that hurts in a community where they can't afford to, to be like. They says, don't be showing off in church. Now, that doesn't mean not to dress nice for church. Not that that's a problem in California. Uh, most of us don't even wear socks to church. It's just a, a whole different thing here. But to universalize this can be damaging. Here's what I mean. Context matters. Wendy and I have done 
ministry in Jamaica several times in a little church up in the mountains beyond the third world. We're talking fourth world. It's, it's as primitive as it gets on this planet. And the women at the church would show, they would spend a whole week barefoot, and they would show up at the church walking barefoot, and they would put on their nice shoes before they came in. If you read this verse wrong, you tell me you shouldn't be doing that. But this is how they honor God. These shoes might last a lifetime. They put them on to, to show respect and honor for God. That's a different thing. So it's important not to take these things out of context. You can take these verses out of context and come down on the poor lady in Jamaica who's putting on nice shoes but goes into church because she only wears shoes at church. And that would be inappropriate. She's doing that because she loves God and she wants to show that this is the most important part of the week for her. And so we want to look at the context no matter what we're doing. Now here's where it starts to get dicey. A woman should learn in quietness and submission. Yes, indeed. This is why Chuck Smith said, I wish this weren't in the Bible. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Here's where the word of God needs to be rightly divided. If you look at 2 Timothy 2, 15, it says, Study to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly interpreting the Bible. The Bible needs interpretation. It just does. To apply the Bible, you are, by definition, interpreting it. So how do we interpret it faithfully? One, I, one thing I like best about the Foursquare tradition, which is one of our faith families, is they keep saying the whole Bible interprets the whole Bible. You can't pick one little verse and see the whole Bible through that. You have to look at the whole picture. If your interpretation of 1 Timothy means someone like Deborah can't show up and run the country, then you're missing the point. If your interpretation of 1 Timothy says that Paul shouldn't have put Lydia in charge of the church in Philippi, you're missing the point, because he did put Lydia in charge of the church. She was a dyer of purple cloths. And to this day, Wendy and I watched a, a movie this week about the, uh, the struggle for women to vote. It was part of the thing in London in the movie, and they would leave each other purple ribbons. Why? Lydia! <laughs> this leader... Female leadership is they off, when women are sent off on mission trips or ordained in ministry, they're often put in purple stoles for Lydia. That's, that's the color of Christian equality or power or leadership in working in your gifts. And that's where it came from, by the way, Lydia. And so you can't interpret Paul in such a way that excludes everything else he does with Paul. So you have to rightly divide the word, look at the whole Bible to interpret the whole Bible, and make sure you pay attention to the context. And here's the part I really like. Look at the original language. Because I have yet to meet a theologian who believes that any English version is without error, no matter how conservative they are. Our faith statement here at the well says in our bylaws, we believe that the original text of the Old New Testament are without error. Because the translations are different. And I, I am really fortunate because I've often said this, I have a Chevy brain and a Rolls Royce education. I can read the original languages. I can read them, not just look it up. I can sight read most of the New Testament in Greek. And so when you look at this, I have 
the privilege of being able to do that. I don't have to rely on what other people say about the Greek. I can just look at it myself, which is way fun, which is way one of the reasons I help with Bible translations and one of the funnest things I do. So we're going to look at the text. The three most important words here are learn, quietness, and full submission. Learn, quietness, and full submission. Let's look at what those three words actually mean. Montaneto in Greek, it's the word discipled. If a person is getting, it's the same word as, as disciple, is the verb form of disciple. Mathetes is disciple. Montaneto here in this case is the verb to disciple. If you're discipling someone, what are they becoming? A disciple. These people are becoming disciples. It's not limit, discipleship is not limited to men. Women should be discipled. The next word, pesuhia. And I looked up the root meaning of this, and it's lack of bustle or calm. When you remember Martha and Mary, which one was full of bustle? Martha. Which one was sitting at the Lord's feet being discipled? Mary. Women and men can get all bustly. And when we're all bustly, we tend not to be receptive. We have different ways of not being receptive. And one of the ways is busyness. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And he'll give you lots of things to do. And it'll take your eyes off the Lord. And he's saying here, let the women be discipled in calm. Let them be calm. Let them be lacking bustle. Let them be like Mary, listening and paying attention as they're being made into disciples, which, by the way, makes them equal with the 12, by the way, as they're being made into the 12. And here's the word which gets trans mistranslated terribly over and over in the New Testament. This one is here, the form is hupotage, and it is a military term for marching. And when soldiers march, they practice marching, practice marching, practice marching. That's what soldiers do. There's always a, at every base, there is a field out there where they march back and forth and do the, you know, up, 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 other little songs and the whole thing. Bill Murray with his deal with, the, you know, whatever he did in that movie. They're, they're out there, they're out there doing their thing. Why do they do that? They practice and practice and practice so that they can operate as a unit. And they learn to pay attention to the person left and right of you. Kufotasso, the verb, means to be in step with each other. To be in step. And to be in step with someone doesn't necessarily mean to submit. That's a Latin word. That doesn't even belong there. Submit means to be under. And hupotasso means to be in line. To be marching together. To be in step with each other. People... Look at any two people standing together, and you can tell whether they're in step with each other. Married couples, you can, when you, Wendy and I go camping, and we see married couples with the same Velcro tennis shoes and the same, the same, uh, uh, the same windbreaker with, you know, uh, we're retired, you know, on the back. They're in step with each other. At the, or they're, the bowling club they're part of, you know, they've got the same shirt on, they're doing, isn't it fun to watch couples who are in step? There, there's something about, you can just tell. You can just tell when two people are in step. And being in step with each other is something that's hard work for a couple to learn how to be in step. 
I tend to walk with bigger steps than Wendy. I've got longer legs than Wendy. And she says, whoa, I'm not a Muslim wife. I'm not walking behind you. And I, so I have to kind of move back. And she says that to me all the time. Not a Muslim wife. Slow down. So we have to learn how to what? Walk in? In step. So what's he saying here? He's, you know, the translation says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Well, it's kind of right. But what the real word, the root, the core of the words is, should be discipled in calm, in stepness. If you want to learn from somebody, you got to be in step with them. Watch the praise band practicing here. Come early, watch. They're learning, they're practicing getting in step with each other. The rhythm, the bass, the whole thing. That's what, that's what praise team practice is. We want to be, work. you can tell when a praise team's in step and when they're not. And so that's what this is all about. What it really says is a woman should be discipled in calm, in step, uh, in stepness. Does that make sense? That's the core meaning of the word. And this is what I love to do. You go back, and, and we have these layers of interpretation on this. That, and you can look these words up yourself. The cool thing is now you can look it up right now on your phone. Just press the word; it'll show you the Greek, and you can see what I'm talking about. It's right there. It's not. This is not some secret knowledge, but people have translated it to their to their opinions over the years. And I might be doing the same thing, but at least I'm going after what I believe is the core meaning, and it gets even better. So let's look at this together. So disciple, lack of bustle or calm. Once again, you got Mary and Martha. The book of Luke and Acts, by the way, were written by an egalitarian. Luke was totally egalitarian. If he mentioned a man, he mentioned a woman. He was always balancing this out. And he's the one who brings us Mary and Martha to show us this example of two different ways of being female. Full of bustle, running around, busy, 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 or are you paying attention to what's going on? Are you spiritually wired? Are you grounded? Are you settled? Be this, not that. So, here's another fun verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Some of you men think, from now on, I'm going to be a complimentarian and tell my wife to do that. So, good luck with that. But anyways... Here's my direct translation from the Greek. I literally pulled out the Greek, put away all the translations, and said, all right, what does this really say? And this is the, not great English, but this is the best translation I could come up with from the passage itself. Gunaike didaskein. Starts out, for a woman to teach. And people take that word to teach, and they put it with the other words, and it's not there in the, in the word. It's, it's, it starts at the beginning by itself. And it's been transposed in English. It's not, that's just wrong. That's not an opinion. That's just wrong. It says, for a woman to teach, comma. But, yeah, I get pretty upset about stuff like that because I'm a grammar nut, but. de didaskein, for a woman to teach. I do not allow her ever, and this is crazy, the word to have authority over. You know what the word means? To kill with your bare hands. <laughs> to throttle. I do not allow her ever to throttle a man. It says that. Look it up. I do, don't throttle men. Don't, don't infantilize them. Don't make fun of them. Don't disrespect them. I can't speak for women, but I can speak for men. 
our biggest desire is to be respected. For virtually all men, if you disrespect a man, you take away his power, his, his self-worth. If you're married to a man, he will live up to your respect and live down to your nagging. So you get to choose. If you tell a man he's all that, he will become all that. If you tell a man he stinks, he'll start stinking. So disrespecting men is, and men will fight over this. I will, I will threaten a man who disrespects me that I don't know out in public. I mean, it, I'll just get into that mode. When do you see me in that mode? Just, you know, don't disrespect me. That, I won't do that to a woman, but I'll do that to a man. It's just, oof, you know, don't, don't be doing that. And that is how we are. If we get disrespected, we get taken down a notch, and we can't be who God made us to be. I can't believe that this got translated the way it's been translated, because it does mean to kill with your bare hands. It, that's literally the, the definition of that verb. Don't throttle a man. So for a woman to teach, I never allow her to throttle a man, but to teach in calmness. And that's what the Greek says. To teach, not blustery, but in calmness. Tamara teaches a lot more calmly than I do. And she's really fun to listen to because you're very steady. You've learned how to do it. Maybe you're just like that. I don't know. But there is, there's a calmness to your teaching. And it's very easy to listen to. That's how women are best received by men is when they're calm. Not when they're frantic. Not when they're all over the place. Not when they're the church lady on Saturday Night Live. That's just a caricature of what we don't want to listen to. And so... This, this, to the best of my knowledge, if I never saw an English translation, this is exactly what the passage. For a woman to teach, I did not allow her ever to throttle men. So don't throttle men with your teaching. Don't, don't bash men. Don't come down on them. Don't, you know. We're hard enough on ourselves. Don't do that. For men, respect is a big deal. Not just Aretha Franklin. R-E-S-B-E-C-T. You better respect us. Or you know, we, we just, we don't do well if we're not respected. It's important that we don't use corrective language for bylaws. When Paul uses corrective language, and Paul's using corrective language throughout this letter, when he's using corrective language, that's not what you do to make your bylaws on. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you folks are dysfunctional with communion. You're getting drunk at communion and making fun of poor people while you're drunk. This is really bad. You might have been in a dysfunctional church, but not that bad when you were growing up. This, this is as bad as it gets. The Corinthian church was very squirrely. And he comes down on really hard on them, and he says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are going to die. What's the death penalty on it? I mean, he's serious. Stop it. Just stop it. And if you've had kids, you've yelled at them with that tone. You, you may be very rarely, but if you've had kids, you've lost it at some point or another, don't you ever, da, 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 da. I remember once my dad was really mad at me uh, for something I did, and I, I did a really bad thing. I, I messed up his paint job on his car by a well, long job. I was a little kid. I was climbing over the top of his car and, and got pretty upset. And I says, I'm sorry, Dad. And I, I came up to him, and he says, no more hugs, because he was really upset. But he didn't mean that for permanently. You know, two days later, I get, got another hug from my dad, but it... it when we say things in a corrective mode, you don't build your whole theology around the corrective mode. 
if you use what he says to the Corinthians about communion, nobody would take it. I mean, if you think about it, we'd all just sit there. I don't want to die. I don't want to come up there. It's, It's important to see the context of what's being said and to make sure that we don't take things out of context. Which men here would like to listen to a very wise called woman speaking? I mean, yeah. Beth Moore is a very wise, calm speaking woman. I could listen to her all day. There's something about that. Joyce Meyer is very understated. She sounds like a lady who just came out of a laundromat in St. Louis uh, uh, with cigarette voice and the whole thing. And she talks real slow. She takes her time and she'll just sit there and pause, do her little hand motions and things, and, and she takes her time. I could listen to that. Put a frantic woman up there, I'm not going to listen. It's just, yeah, it's using corrective language for bylaws is not a good idea. And then he talks in verse 14 about the woman being deceived by Eve. After all, the man wasn't deceived, the woman was deceived, and goes on and on about this kind of stuff. And what he's talking about here, I believe, is the deception of the Artemis cult. The deception of the Artemis cult was still at work among the women who were part of the church in Ephesus. And he's saying they continue to be deceived by the mentality in that cult. And watch for that. And then he says something radical, which you don't see as radical, but it is radical. Then in verse 15 he says, and you'll be blessed in childbirth. Why is this radical? Because Paul is reversing the curse of Genesis when it says it's a curse to go through childbirth. Paul says, no, being a woman is great, and it's a blessing to give birth to a child. Don't see that as a curse anymore. He's reversing the curse. And that's a big deal, because women saw in Jewish thought childbirth was this curse. And he said, no, it's a blessing. Your anatomy is a blessing. God did this for a reason. And we, as believers, Jesus has gotten rid of the curse. We need to live in the blessing. So Paul is doing a lot of stuff here. And once again, this is my interpretation. And there may be other interpretations that are better. But I really believe this gets at what Paul was really trying to say. So we have to look at the whole Bible being interpreted by the whole Bible. Lydia led the church in Philippi, the dire in purple cloth, and she was obviously put in charge of that by Paul. So therefore, we can't interpret Paul in such a way that says he can't do that, because he did. And women spoke in 1 Corinthians, and it says, when women speak in church and when they prophesy, what is prophesying? Speaking for God. When women prophesy, obviously, that doesn't mean to be silent. That means to Do it calmly, not to be just hysterical or something. When women prophesy, speak for God, 1 Corinthians, they should do this, this, and this, because that's more orderly. Number three, Paul's most important verse about men and women. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul at his best. We are one body. We're not two churches of men and a church of women. We are one body, and we are the greatest force for the empowerment of women on the whole planet. No question. Christian church has done so much to liberate the role of women from tribal societies and other places where they're often treated as property. We invented marriage vows. 
we invented, if anyone here has any reason to stop this marriage, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. We did that to give the women an out in case they were being forced into a wedding, a marriage they didn't want to do. That was a Christian invention. It wasn't just a drama thing for movies. It was, it was, it was put in there to give women an out if they weren't going in willfully into this marriage. And they have the vows and they have the promise and all of these kinds of things. And so to, to turn Paul into a misogynist is missing the whole point. In fact, Paul was creating fellowship, men and women, that was unheard of. They took communion the same way. They got baptized the same way. They, they, they partook of everything together. This was new in the ancient world. And it was really good for all the men and women who were involved in it. Local situation. you got to look at the local situation. You can't just take verses out of context and say this is going to be the rule forever. And you have to look at Paul when he's talking to Timothy. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to go into detail. But Paul's letters are midrash. They're not Torah. They are applying. their application of truths. They are not meant to be a new Torah, a new law. It's not like Paul got rid of the old law so he could, you know, we'll get rid of the Old Testament law so you can have Paul's law now. That's not the point. He's applying the truths of the Christian faith to Corinth, to Ephesus, to Philippi, to all these other places. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 has a very similar passage, but it's a little different situation. And we'll go through that when we do 1 Corinthians sometime, but I'm not going to do it now. Everyone agrees that some of Paul's writing is situational. How many women here are wearing hats? Paul says that women should keep their heads covered in church. Well, we don't do that. Why? Because we believe that was situational. You all believe it's situational. Otherwise, you'd make sure that women were wearing hats here. There must have been some reason for that at that situation. I don't know what that was. Correction of abuse is not a good foundation for guidelines for regular people. Talked about that communion in 1 Corinthians. However, his main point, verses chapters 1 and 2, men stop majoring the minors and women don't boss men around and don't throttle them and take away their dignity. Don't do that. Don't handpick. Don't boss. Acts 18.26. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla, now what, what gender was Priscilla? A woman. And Aquila, her husband, always mentioned as Priscilla and Aquila, by the way, never Aquila and Priscilla. And they were Paul's right-hand people. And he would send them to do things. And what did they do? They taught Apollos. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So Paul can't be against women teaching. He says, go get a hold of Apollos and uh, straighten him out. Because Paul, we know from the Bible, was a little concerned that Apollos didn't, never, never even heard of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a big deal. And so they corrected him, and she was part of the teaching. So you can't interpret Paul in such a way that doesn't let Paul do all the things he does. We have to look at the whole Bible, interpreting the whole Bible. 1 Timothy 1.5, I want to go back to this from last week. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. And for that to be the focus of a church, we have to work out some of the other stuff so it doesn't get in the way of this. Who thinks that the secondary things can become a lot more important than salvation issues in a church? Real fast. People break fellowship with each other over the smallest things. 
They'll break fellowship with each other over whether or not to use a single cup for communion or little ones. They'll break fellowship over things. It's just fascinating what people will break fellowship over. There was a church in Holland that broke off of another church because the pastor baptized a baby in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they said that's three baptisms. The Bible says one baptism. So they they split the church, and they called the church the Note Voting for Chot, the, the Emergency Shelter for God, because I'm sure he was pretty upset about that. I, can you imagine? God who created the universe upset about how somebody gets baptized? So it's, we, people will break fellowship over baptismal practice. They will. They'll break it over communion practice. They'll break it over all kinds of things on whether or not Tamara can teach the Bible calmly. I mean, those kind of things. That's, that, these are not salvation issues. But we tend to make them that. We forget about love, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. That's what I want to focus on. And you know what? It's not that sexy. You can get a big crowd by talking about something controversial and just going after everybody else. Going after the other Christians who don't do it right or whatever. You can do that. But that's, that's not helpful. To focus on the main stuff takes focus. Next week, 1 Timothy 3, church leadership. And that's going to be super interesting also. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up here, and uh, we're going to pray. Or we're going to, What's the plan, Kim? Pray? I'll pray. Lord, we pray a blessing on, uh, on uh, the joy we sense when we get into your word, Lord. And we want to do all of this with love, Lord. We want to do all of this respecting men and women because your word says they were both made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And when men are looking at women, we're looking at people made in your image. And when women are looking at men, we're looking, they're looking at uh, men who are made in your image. And once we get that, Lord, we start to sense why we need to love one another and focus on the main things. And Lord, uh, none of us is a stereotypical male or female. We all, everyone's different. So we don't mean to overgeneralize here, Lord, or anything like that, because everybody's different. But uh, Lord, we pray that our cultural norms wouldn't be the rule we follow, but rather that your word would sometimes push against our cultural norms, like it did at Ephesus, like it does here. Lord, we give you thanks that we've been able to stay out of the culture wars during this whole pandemic here at this church, and uh, that's taken some effort. But we've tried to, to make your son the main thing, and not medical opinions and not uh, political opinions. And it's challenging to keep our eyes on your son, Lord, uh, keep our eyes on Jesus. We want to keep doing that. We give you thanks, Lord, for the Alpha course yesterday. And, and uh, especially I see here today, I see, I see Zach and, and, and Matt and Alan and other people received the prayer yesterday. I give you thanks for that time together. And, Lord, uh, we continue to pray for Deanna, who's continues to have such incredible struggles with Nicole. We pray, Lord, that you help us continue to, you know exactly where she is, help us to continue to find her and to get her into some help, which is more permanent, Lord. We pray for Deanna and her mother's heart, Lord. We pray that you would continue to 
to bless her as she cries out to you for the, for the life of her daughter, Lord. You've got a great plan for Nicole, and we pray that you would uh, just continue to call her back to it. Pray that you bless us as we get into First First uh, uh, Timothy three next week. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide our discussions into your Word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. taking communion today okay all right let me stand for the last song all right so we did this one a couple weeks ago and we do this thing called a round which is where the guys have a part and the girls have a part and we all sing it together it sounds really cool so the girls are going to follow me we're going to sing, I will sing to and worship the king who is worthy. It will be labeled up there. Huh? No, I switched it. Yes. I switched it because I was told that part was really high for us to sing. And I went, you know, I'm not a guy. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Thank you for telling me. Just like House was saying, we have differences. You know, men have lower voices. Okay. <laughs>
touch me because we're declaring who God is. It's so wonderful, right? To declare you're Lord of Lords, you're King of Kings. It is fun. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> all right. Stan's going to pray for us. Hallelujah. What a beautiful word we got today. I think we're all in a receptive mode. And when you're in a receptive mode, we can press into the Lord as much as we can. So all of our faults, all of our fears, all of our ugliness will drop away as we press into the Lord. So press into the Lord this week and have a beautiful time. See you next time. Amen. Have a great week. The only law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be changed is you have to eat up all the food that's over here. And uh, Some of us are going to be going to lunch afterwards. We're going to go to Board and Brew on, on Beach. So if anybody wants to join us there, we're going to do that. And I'd love to see any of you there. It's over there by Albertson Sorda.